it's by-election Super Thursday and welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Moya Lothian-McLean and I'm joined by the incomparable Rivka Brown tonight. Good evening, Moya. Good evening. Very excited to have you on. We haven't had this pairing before. It's a bit of a treat for you guys at home. Also coming up on tonight's show, Just Stop Oil have been counter-protested and unfortunately also violently attacked. Councils have been issuing some fines for some pretty pathetic reasons and we'll be rounding up strike action taking place today. Spoiler, there's a lot of it. Let us go to our first story. The Conservatives are preparing themselves for a potentially historic bruising today as voters go to the polls in three English constituencies. Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Somerton and Froome and Selby and Anstey will choose, a new, will choose new MPs after a series of Tory resignations. Now, there is a lot to get through and by-elections can be a little dry, so let's just get into it. Up first is the former seat of disgraced Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the West London constituency of Uxbridge and South Ryslip. In 2019, of course, he had a majority of just 7,900, which is not the steepest hill for Labour to climb. Plus, there's been an additional scandal after it emerged that the backer of the Tory candidate repeatedly called for the NHS to be scrapped. Now, Boris Johnson has been strikingly absent from the campaign, perhaps to save the current Tory candidate, business consultant Steve Tuckwell, from the taint of failure. Now, Labour candidate Danny Beals is a charity worker from the area who has seen his party throw huge energy behind him, and it seems to have worked, with the bookies saying that Labour is set to take the seat. That would represent a historic win for the party, as the seat's been in Tory hands across one boundary change and four decades. Moving on, Somerton of Froome is a rural constituency in Somerset. Gained by the Tories in 2019 with a 19,000 majority, it looks like a big ask for the Lib Dem candidate Sarah Dyke. But she says locals have already been treating her as the new MP following the repeated scandals that have trailed former Tory MP David Warburton. This picture was published by The Times in April last year. It shows Warburton sitting in front of lines of white powder. According to the young woman whose beautifully decorated home he was in, that was cocaine. She also accused him of sexual harassment and unwanted touching, leading him to resign as an MP. The Lib Dems have been playing the long game in the seat ever since, putting time and money in preparation for today's by-election. According to the bookies they're projected to win. And if they do, they'd be taking back a seat they held for 18 years between 1997 and 2015. Similar similar battle played out in the constituency of Tiverton and Honiton in neighbouring Devon last year, where the Lib Dems similarly came, overcame a big Tory majority to take the seat. That also followed the resignation of a disgraced Tory MP, Neil Parrish, who was accused of watching porn in the House of Commons. Next, Selby Nancy is a North Yorkshire constituency, just a stone's throw away from Rishi Sunak's own Richmond seat. This is the one seat where he has less to worry about, however. The former MP, Nigel Adams, enjoyed a comfortable majority of 20,000 at the last election, meaning Labour would need to pull off an 18% swing to win it. But local residents are annoyed with Adams, who left them in the lurch when he resigned um, in in addition what am I saying? In the Johnson loyalist quit Parliament after he was passed over for a peerage in Johnson's honours list, a move locals have described accurately as, quote, petty. They've also complained about Sunak's leadership, a lack of affordable housing 
and the cost of living. In 2010, boundary changes made Selby and Ainsty a safe Tory seat, but Labour did hold its predecessor, Selby, from 1997 to 2010. According to the bookies, who are having a field day on this Thursday, Labour are set to take it, though narrowly, and even if Labour don't win it today, boundary changes set to take place at the general election will swing the constituency towards the party. If the bookies are right, we could be looking at three significant Tory by-election losses in a single day. However, some Conservatives are keeping copium demand high. This was Scottish Tory Andrew Bowie talking to Sky's Kay Burley. What did it say about the Prime Minister if you lose all three? I'm not going to countenance losing all three. We're in it to win it. There are still two days of this by-election uh, campaign to go and polls don't close till 10pm on Thursday evening. As I said, uh, I would encourage people to look at the record of the Conservative Party in government, look at what we are promising to deliver for the future and vote, vote accordingly. Maybe you should buy a lottery ticket as well. Ooh. Cassie Kay. To be fair, Scottish Tories do need a high level of delusion to continue powering through. Now, the Tory who these by-elections matter to most, though, is the Prime Minister. Three losses would mean Sunak could hold the dubious honour of being the first Prime Minister since 1968 to lose three seats in a day. How will Sunak respond? The Telegraph has reported on rumours that Sunak is planning a cabinet reshuffle this week in the wake of the expected by-election defeats. In politics, that is the traditional way of looking like you're in charge when all around you it's falling apart. Now, Rivka. How significant do you think these by-elections are? They've always been somewhat of a protest vote. So if the Tories do lose three by-elections, what could this mean for the general election? Anything? Well, obviously, Moya, this is a sign of things to come. Rishi is literally reorganising the deck chairs on the Titanic with his reshuffle. He knows that, you know, it's game over for him and this is the early sign of that. I think what's interesting, though, and important to note that is that this is not a vote for Labour. This is a vote against the Conservatives. We had polling recently that showed that most people in the UK don't know what Keir Starmer stands for. Um, and so that can only get you so far. It might actually get Keir Starmer in government. But I think we should take a salient lesson from other European countries, Italy, for example, whose fourth technocratic government collapsed last year, only to be replaced by a far-right government. There's only so long that Labour can continue not to offer the public anything and be rewarded simply for the failing, failings of their opponent. Eventually, people are going to look for stronger stuff. We're in a cost of living crisis. We're in a, midst, in a period of massive inflation um, and stagnant growth. Labour saying that it won't give nurses a pay rise, that it won't, um, you know, lift the two child benefit cap, that it won't, it won't, it won't. No, we can't. When the whole country thinks, in fact, yes, we can, um, is 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 a recipe for disaster in the long term. So it's important to note that, yes, this is the beginning of the end for the Tories. Great. We're going to have another suit in power that does absolutely nothing. And in the long term, perhaps after 2024, but you know, in, in not even in the long term, perhaps shortly after that, this is going to create a massive opening for people to the right of Sunak, perhaps to the far right of Sunak, just in the same way as it has in Italy, in Greece, you know, elsewhere in Europe. So I, I wouldn't be too heartened by uh, the results today. Speaking of another suit in power, what do we think of the current suit in power? Do you think that Rishi Sunak is going to cling on if he suffers three different by-election defeats. Or did the Tories kind of given up the ghost at this point and said, we'll just stick with him until the end? 
Yeah, you know, I think that he's kind of asleep at the wheel and is kind of just seeing things through to it to the inevitable um, sort of end next year. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think that um, there's going to be any massive change. You know, the kind of things that Labour are promising at the next election, um, you know, are so are so middle of the road that I can't I can't necessarily see anything like significantly changing in 2025 after the election. So yeah. Fine, Sunak's kind of given up. But what's surprising, what's much more surprising is that Keir Starmer has also given up, despite the fact that he's, you know, ahead in the polls, significant advantage on his opponent, opponent could leverage that to propose some genuinely ambitious, you know, path-breaking policies, like we're seeing in Spain with the new sort of left-wing platform there. You know, that, that there's there's plenty of room for Labour. There's so much kind of um, wiggle room that Labour has to... to um, to, to propose ambitious policies that genuinely change people's lives and that bring people over to the Labour Party rather than just away from the Tory party. And, and yet they're just kind of staring into an open goal. Let's move on to our next story. It's midsummer in end-stage Tory Britain, which means several unions are now out on strike fighting for the rights of their members and the rest of us. Some 20,000 RMT members have taken industrial action today, affecting services across 14 train operators. The operators involved are only those that contract directly with the government who are refusing to negotiate on pay conditions and so-called modernisation. What modernisation really means is redundancies and doing more for less. The 24-hour strike is the first of three days of action set to take place over the next 10 days, with further stoppages due on the 22nd and 29th of July. And on Sky News, RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch reported the current state of negotiations with the government. Well, we haven't got any. We haven't had any uh, contact from the, com- from the companies or from the, uh, the government for a couple of months, three or four months now. That's unfortunate. They seem to be locked in uh, to their position. We think there are solutions available. They want to to get some uh, changes in the way that the railway is established. We can discuss those with them, but we need an agreement, not imposition on top of us. Last week, they issued us with notification of 2,300 redundancies just in station staff, and there's more to come of that amongst catering staff fleet engineering onboard crew. So there's a vicious campaign of cuts going on and we need to get an agreement so that we can preserve our railways and it's a, a way that people expect it to be run and so that our members have got job security and we would like a pay rise and decent conditions going forward. We think we can resolve some of those through a bit of goodwill and some negotiations. So it's up to them to get back to us to invite us into the room. So... Just to clarify for our viewers, I think I'm right in saying Mick, that uh, you've done a deal with Eurostar, you've done a deal with Scott Rail. Why can't why can't this dispute be settled as well? Well, we've done deals all over. We've done deals in private sector companies, railway engineering companies, bus companies, and many of the train operators are not under the stamp of the Department for Transport, which is the Tory government. This dispute is only about those train operators that are contracted to the Department for Transport and therefore to the Conservative government. So in Wales and Scotland, and in the private sector of the railway, we have got agreements, we've got good agreements uh, that have preserved jobs, given us our people decent pay, and of, of course have not had to have industrial action. Uh, where we've got the Conservative government, they have managed to wind up barristers, uh, hospital consultants, doctors, nurses, teachers, 
all sorts of people because they want to make them poorer, is essentially. Inflation is still very high. Uh, and any pay deals are way below often half the rate of inflation, if that. And of course, our members have not had a pay deal for four years. So we're really struggling on the cost of living of crisis. And we want to get that resolved and get our people a decent wage and get a settlement to all the issues. Joining the RMT is the train drivers union, ASLEF, who've called a week-long ban on working overtime. Also out today are NHS England consultants and hospital-based dentists. It's their first major strike in 50 years and will last for 48 hours, with a further 48 hours of industrial action threatened for late August. Like their junior doctor colleagues, the consultants are calling for pay restoration over salaries that have been slashed in real terms for the last 15 years. To bring them back to 2008 levels, they need a 35% increase and have branded the government's 6% offer an insult. But they're also fighting to save the NHS. Consultant gynaecologist Tracy Jackson said why she's on the picket line. How long have you been a, a consultant for and did you ever think you'd be standing on a picket line? So I've been a consultant for, for nearly 21 years and no, I didn't. This is exactly the opposite of what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be working in the hospital seeing my patients, but it's come to this. How long has this been building for, in your experience, to see that it's come to a head now? Is this something that's been worsening for years? Yes, yes. So underinvestment in doctors, nurses, the NHS in general, uh, reduction in our pay in real terms has led to this. But for me, it's not really about pay. It's about trying to save the National Health Service and about trying to provide a service that people want to work in for the future. So recruitment and retention of doctors. Well, you know, we're seeing people leaving, going to work in the Middle East, Australia, colleagues of mine leaving. And it's about, for me, it's about trying to save the service for the patients of this country. So there are those financial drivers, people leaving to go for perhaps better salaries. The government are saying 6% is enough, but you're saying it's not just about the money. There's more to it than that. It's about retention and it's about working standards. Exactly. So you've got the most brilliant doctors in this country. The training's rigorous. We, we work really hard. I went to university 40 years ago, been a doctor for 35 years. We, we love it. We're passionate about it. We, I'd, I would never leave. So this is, for me, it's about recruitment, retention, keeping the service going. It, we, we're genuinely concerned that we're going to lose the National Health Service. The medical director of the NHS has warned that the strike will render routine NHS procedures, quote, virtually at a standstill. That's because, aside from doing more complicated procedures, consultants supervise the work of their more junior colleagues and other medical staff. The striking doctors are still providing emergency cover, though. Health Secretary Steve Barclay gave this reaction to the strike. We have accepted in full the recommendations of the independent pay review body process. And, and what that means is, after this pay rise, the average NHS earnings for a consultant will be £134,000 a year. And in addition to that, we've also listened to the BMA's number one request, which was to make changes to pension taxation, which means at age 65, uh, a consultant retiring can earn up to £60,000 a year tax-free. So I urge consultants now uh, to focus on patients, uh, to put any industrial action behind them. Uh, we're investing alongside the commitment on pension reform uh, and on the pay review body recommendations in the biggest ever expansion in workforce training, backed by £2.4 billion. Uh, and we're further investing in the NHS estate with over £20 billion investment in our new hospitals programme. Kevin O'Kane is a consultant in acute internal medicine and BMA London chair. 
He gave Sky News his view of Steve Barclay's argument. I've given my entire career to the NHS. I should expect to have a reasonable pay. The Doctors and Dentists Review Body was set up in 1960 to make sure that consultants' pay, doctors' pay, wouldn't have to be upon in, uh, inflation battles with government, to make sure we could concentrate on looking after patients, to make sure we didn't have to go on strike. This government has totally undermined the pay review body. It's stacked with lackeys and it is no longer independent. Again, the Prime Minister refuses to negotiate about putting together an independent pay review body. That's one of our problems today. So, that's the railway and health workers out on strike today. And joining them are BBC local radio journalists who are members of the NUJ. This is the third time they're taking industrial action and they're doing it after BBC bosses plan to pull local radio services, which would slash local programming by 60%. The collapse in local newspapers has seen a disastrous decline in local politicians and other institutions being held to account, and also general standards of journalism, if you ask me. According to the NUJ, losing local broadcasting could have the same effect. NUJ national broadcasting organiser Paul Seeger said this. This strike action will again have a huge impact on BBC local output, with many stations and programmes expected to be off-air. NUJ members would much rather be working in newsrooms on Thursday and Friday, but the BBC's damaging plans for job cuts, slashing local radio and changing ways of working remain deeply unpopular. We believe there are ways to protect and promote digital investment without cutting much-loved and valued local radio content. With an election around the corner, holding local politicians to account is more important than ever. I mean, I totally back the strikes, but I just know some of those journalists are happy to have a Friday off. Rivka, here's what I want to know. Does the endurance of these strikes suggest a healthier, organised labour landscape than existed just one year ago? You know, we've seen these gone for quite a while now. Does that suggest they're growing rather than shrinking? I mean, definitely. You just need to look at not just the endurance, but the expansion of these strikes, both upwards and downwards. You know, typically we think of strikes um, as as something that mid mid paid, low paid public sector workers do. But in fact, today we've got consultants joining their junior doctor colleagues on strike for the first time in a decade. And I think this is really important. You know, for the first time in a decade, in years, we're seeing the cost of living crisis and inflation hitting people with mid earnings, with higher earnings even. You know, that's exactly why we're seeing a flurry of Times columnists writing about how they can't afford to rent in London anymore. And and the expansion, the kind of universal um, effect that the cost of living crisis is having, I think, is is what's uh, broadening, uh, you know, the effects of the strike and broadening the kind of um, involvement of workers in the strike. We're also seeing workers at the lowest end. So earlier this month, uh, my colleague Simon Childs wrote about how low paid and precarious workers, cleaners at universities, um, you know, security staff, uh, unionized by the United Voices of the World, were um, were also joining the strike wave. So we're having, you know, a hugely broad sweep of workers across, you know, the lowest to the highest um, sort of paid, particularly in the public sector, particularly gig economy workers joining the strike wave in pure hard 
numbers, something like 118,000 people joined trade unions between 2020 and 2021. And I'm sure those figures are, are, are sort of going uh, up and up. And, 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 you know, this is after not just a decade, three decades of declining trade union membership. And that's because people have realized that the only way to reverse the decline in their living standards isn't by asking the government for favors, isn't by hoping that they'll do the right thing, but by forcing their hand. And the only way we can do that effectively, other than, I mean, we're going to talk about some of the uh, direct action-based approaches that people like Just Stop Oil are taking later, is by unionizing. And I think more and more people are, are realizing that, including people who might have considered uh, unions uncouth, impolite, or just not, frankly, their problem up until now. Yeah, it is, it is really fascinating to see the, you know, the unions that prided themselves on not taking what they would refer to as militant action, suddenly coming out on the picket lines and being, I don't want to say radicalized because it's the wrong word, but being militarized, it's also the wrong word, but being forced to take action on behalf of their members in the way they haven't previously. And I think you're totally right when you say, you know, these, these middle earners are understanding their position as workers in a way they haven't been forced to for a very long time, which is also probably why it's so disappointing at a, at a time when there's never been, you know, in recent years, more of an opportunity to capitalize on that understanding of your position as a worker and never been more demand for fair pay and decent living standards. Do we have, you know, the major parliamentary party that wears the name of the labor movement in its title saying, oh, you know, we're going to keep the cap on, the two-child benefit cap, and we're actually going to do an austerity program, which is the whole reason that these public services have been stripped to the bone in the first place. It doesn't make any sense. But what do I know? I'm just a journalist, not a politician. Let's move on to our next story. Do you swear in public? Do you ever feed the birds at your local duck pond? Even kick rocks. Well, watch out. These are activities classed as offences by local councils across England and Wales, accompanied with an on-the-spot £100 fine. And research by campaign group The Manifesto Club reveals that such fines for such offences have reached a record high. 13,000 fines for so-called busybody offences were issued in 2022, which is a 29% increase in such fines in three years. This is from The Guardian. Offences for which people were fined included shouting, which had been banned by four councils, and making noise, which was also banned by four councils. There were 22 restrictions on loitering, seven on busking, 11 bans on swearing or foul language, six on feeding the birds, and seven restrictions on rough sleeping or sleeping in a vehicle. Sounds a bit like the 12 days of Christmas, doesn't it? Seven bans on swearing. Uh, now, what powers are local councils enforcing these fines under? Well, that would be a tricksy little bit of 2014 legislation called the Anti-Social Behaviour Crime and Policing Act, which replaced ASBOs with criminal behaviour orders. And this act also introduced public space protection orders, meant to be used to tackle, quote, threatening or violent behaviour. But instead, local councils are using these orders to restrict behaviour ranging from climbing trees to even napping in public. The Guardian explains this example. Rugby Council criminalised the climbing of trees and made it a crime to pick up stones in certain areas. Wiltshire banned the possession of stones or ball bearings, quote, capable of being launched as a projectile by a catapult, slingshot or similar item. A spokesman for Rugby Borough Council said the council did so to, quote, protect and enhance habitats at Newbold Quarry Nature Reserve. 
It's now an offence to have a nap in a park in Rotherham, Welwyn, Hatfield, after both councils made it a crime to sleep in a public space. And the price paid for such innocuous acts is on the up. The government recently announced a whopping 400% increase in PSPO fine fees, seeing them rise to £500. Plus, police forces will now be able to issue them. If you remember, in March, Rishi Sunak unveiled the government's new Antisocial Behaviour Action Plan. As well as increasing PSPO fines, the plan also contains pledges such as cracking down on, quote, nuisance begging. And silly as these low-level offences may sound, the impact of PSPOs on Britain's homeless population has been a long-standing issue. This was something that Manifesto Club Director Josie Appleton spoke up on, saying this. The use of these powers to target those who are homeless amounts to a criminalisation of poverty. Slapping homeless people with fines for begging is as perverse as it is heartless. It's even more worrying that rough sleepers could soon be fined the vast sum of £500 for begging, sleeping in a public place or looking in bins. The government should be looking to scrap these powers, not extend them and make the problems worse. Something I'm really interested in is why have these fines hit a record high now? Rivka, what's going on? Oof, I mean, where to begin with this? Like, if people had £500 to pay a fine for begging, they wouldn't be begging. Like, I just don't get the logic of it. But I think if I was to try and explain what's happening here, I think, as Josie Appleton says, this is the criminalisation of poverty and something that we have literally seen since the end of feudalism. You know, vagrancy laws, which uh, sort of came about in the mid-14th century as we transitioned from a feudal to a capitalist uh, economic system were designed to prevent people from like loitering in public spaces, doing a lot of the things that are described here, be no comic sort of behavior, um, catapults and so on. But, you know, in all seriousness, are designed to prevent people hanging out basically and not working. Uh, you know, the, the, the term busybody might also be quite useful here in that it's what's it telling us that the people who they're policing, these busybodies are policing, are not busy enough. They're not working or they're not seen as economically productive in the way that our society expects us to be. And so obviously, you know, we're in an economic crisis. Councils are cash strapped and probably looking for sort of creative ways to make money. Uh, but also we're in an economic downturn. Our productivity has been sluggish for decades. This is a basically punitive way, it seems, to jumpstart Britain's economy. And obviously it's not going to work. Uh, otherwise, we'd be the streets would be lined with, you know, beggars with £500 in their pocket. I just simply don't get it. Yeah, I think we should probably point out, although I think that NASA's is dead on every other sense, I believe the busybody aspect comes from, it is referring to the councils themselves who are busybodies because they're criminalising things such as like sleeping in public. But I, I totally agree. It's also something that we can't rule out is what type of people get attracted to being local councillors in an age when, you know, the predominant narrative is that we've got this social decline, which is due to a moral decay rather than social decline due to the fact we've held austerity politics for 13 years. Um, so I'd be interested to see the sort of makeup of the councillors in the spaces that have criminalised these behaviours and these desperate attempts to crack down on, you know, what they say is antisocial behaviour with the tools that they have which are punitive because centralised government is the only one that can really up wages or, you know, reinvest in communities in a way that would mean that people who've been 
alienated or disenfranchised completely or just exed out of taking part in that community and being what we would call a functioning member of society, if you're being horrible and proper, um, gives them somewhere to go, somewhere to stay, somewhere to you know, be all day. Um, and instead, people are penalized for simply not being able to function within the very narrow constraints that are set before us. Anyway, we are going to have a quick break now, but please stay with us because when we'll be back, we'll be discussing Corbyn, Starmer, Blair, <laughs> the Holy Trinity, and more on Labour refusing to reverse Tory welfare cuts, plus just stop oil. Stay tuned. The point of the media is to get the facts. It's to get the truth. That's the point. If you want me to start critiquing the British press, I'm happy to. Our press corps is a joke. Why are left-wing politicians held to a completely different standard? The story in the media is already written. There is no meritocracy in media. And to be honest, in my opinion, I look at economic analysis in the media, that is not analysis. That is an entertainment product. You know, we've got this huge media machine which works against any kind of politics of hope. They are still quite concerned, I think, about the spectre of a socialist left which may have access the public at large. Very many millions of people want a society in which people can live in dignity, the climate is protected, and there's very little political voice for that. Our entire like political and media establishment is glued together by like whatever torturous shit these people have done to each other in like Oxbridge. They don't like Navarra media. We're still there and there's still the embryo of a successful left populist project. If you are not taking these guys and rewarding them for being right and punishing them for being wrong, then they are not analysing, they are fucking dancing. Welcome to Navarra Media's The Dustbin of History Debates. People don't have pensions, so we make people who don't have enough money to buy a property pay someone else's pension. For my rent increase, you bastard! If I was going to define toxic masculinity, I would say choosing a Navarra masculinity panel over Carly Rae Jepsen. What is going on? Pathologizing masculinity too much creates the problems around it and the expectations around it. The most difficult thing of all is to take a concept that has been in some ways warped and rebuild it into something better. The crops built into the DNA is violence, anti-workers' rights, um, is racism. Policemen in the dustbin of history! We have created a global, real-time computational network. Our planet has an exoskeleton of thinking machines, satellites. What is it all for? It's to sell ad revenues and to make you distracted. Let's go to our next story. Keir Starmer's position on the two-child benefits cap has drawn criticism from many within his party. Their justification is the so-called fiscal responsibility and that there's no money left to remove the cap. One figure, however, from Labour's past absolutely loves it, Tony Blair. He's being very tough with the Labour Party about spending commitments and I think he's absolutely right. He's just saying, look, we can't... If we're saying it's as bad as it is, we can't just make unfunded promises. So to be clear, you think he was right to say no to lifting the two-child limit on universal credit? Well, I, I should imagine he, like me, is probably completely opposed to it. But the question is, can you commit that you're going, before you get in and before you see what the state of things are, can you commit to changing it? And Could, Shouldn't he just said don't know? No, you can never say that. I'm I mean, I can say that now because I'm not in frontline politics, but uh, no. 
not in frontline politics, but on our bloody screens every other week. So here's what makes a brilliant Labour leader, according to Blair. Immovability and toughness, and possessing the kind of eye on the prize, lack of empathy that makes it easy to abandon hungry kids. Oh yes, and not making promises you can't, or rather won't, fund. Liz Kendall, shadow, shadow Minister for Social Care, was also on Peston, where she was asked about the two-child benefit cap too. Here's what she said. It is extraordinary that your party, which within recent memory committed itself to abolishing child poverty, will not commit to abolish the two-child limit on these very important payments. I think Keir was being honest with the Labour Party and, more importantly, with the public, that we will not make uh, spending commitments, that we can't show exactly how we'll fund them and that we can't be sure that we'll keep them. We, we have seen the results of that when Liz Truss made unfunding spending commitments and it was working people who were paying the price because we actually believe that fiscal credibility is the rock on which we build everything else that we do. And unless we can get the economy growing again, we won't have the money to do what we want to do and what we actually did in government, which was to dramatically reduce child poverty. And let me just say this, the really big issue we face is that more than two thirds of children growing up in poverty are in a household where at least one person works. So whereas back in 1997, we needed a floor, the minimum wage under which people couldn't fall, but the future, we need a ladder so that people can get good jobs, better paid jobs, and that is the prize, the prize for families and the prize for tackling child poverty. Uh, right. So just let me get this straight. We've gone from fully costed manifestos of, you know, this is how we're going to fund social development. This is how we're going to get you all your free broadband to, sorry, we actually can't fund anything. Maybe vote for us. Oh, but in some time in the future, when we've achieved amazing growth, somehow, we're not going to tell you how, children can finally get a look in. No mention, yeah, of what the policies are that will achieve that growth. It's just manifesting. We're just going to manifest it. But in the meantime, let's feed those kids some fiscal credibility for breakfast. Luckily, there was one person talking sense on that show, though perhaps too much sense to keep belonging to the Labour Party, it seems. Uh, this was Jeremy Corbyn's view on Starmer's approach to the two-child limit. He's wrong. The two-child limit is cruel, impoverishes families of uh, three or more children, to abolish it would cost about a billion pounds a year. 1.4, I think, the IMS. 1.4. Yeah. Not very much when you look at all the other issues in public spending, but the massive improvement it would make in the lives of uh, those families, in the life, lives of those children, and I see it as an investment for the future and a big step towards ending child poverty. I just think it's a big mistake to rule it out. I mean, his view is winning an election is more important than anything else. And in order to be confident of that, he has got to show that, quotes, he's a safe pair of hands with the economy. Is that, is that a misjudgment? It's a very strange supposition that you can't win the election because you promised to try and do something to end child poverty. Poor people have votes as well, you know. Those families have got votes as well. Their relatives have got votes as well. And if they are struggling, and I know plenty of families in my own community who, three or four, five children in some cases, are really struggling, and uh, they would look askance at a Labour proposal which says, well, sorry, your problem, your fault. 
Starmer's Labour Party loves to talk about avoiding unfunded spending, but you can, you know, fund that spending. See how Corbyn describes children as an investment that gives a clue to one route. Borrowing, there is no better infrastructure to invest in than tomorrow's people, and that is growth. But there's also another way of funding it, and Corbyn dropped a hint when the discussion moved back to Tony Blair. One of the statements that Blair made was that... What, today? Today, just now to me in this interview. I mean, he said that the burden of tax in this country is too high and that we're already spending too much on public services. Well, it's a very odd thing for him to say, but then he is a very wealthy man, so maybe he would be worried about taxes. Ooh! (laughs) Still got it. What a radical idea, though. Imagine taxing wealthy millionaires like Tony Blair and getting kids out of poverty. Unfortunately, the Labour Party doesn't want to talk about the range of economic choices available to them, and it's about more than just the two-child benefit cap. This is a new headline. The Times reported that fiscal discipline is going to trump reversing any Tory welfare cuts. Senior Labour figures have been doing the media rounds and briefing the papers that, don't worry, these overwhelmingly popular positions, such as starving children, will continue. Why? Because the grown-ups are in charge now and they are committed to rehashing the same financial rhetoric that gave us austerity for a decade. Yay! And expanding on the two-child benefit cap, an ally of Starmer told The Times this. There will be more of these to come. It was this issue next week, this week, and it will be something else somewhere else down the line. It's important that people understand that. You can't on one hand say fiscal responsibility is crucial and on the other hand come up with a load of unfunded commitments. The one, the thing Keir wants to do now, this has started, is be absolutely clear that people have got to get their heads around this. I guess that means we're going to be stuck with the overall benefits cap that robs people of their entitlements. The bedroom tax and benefit sanctions. Just what you always dreamed of from a Labour government. Rivka, why does Keir Starmer suddenly think that adopting George Osborne's fiscal ideology is an election winner? Well, Moya, it beats me. You know, I'm old enough to remember when 11 million people had their wages paid by the government for over a year. We know, and, you know, it only happened like bloody yesterday that the state served people when it needed it the most. We know what's possible, but somehow our elites are now telling us that things are not possible again and we need to manage our expectations. As Corbyn points out, this is partly a very selfish thing. Tony Blair doesn't want a a tax on millionaires, despite the fact that the majority of the British public does. Something like 51% of the British public wants a tax on millionaires, of whom there are over 2 million in this country, almost 3 million millionaires in the UK. Three quarters of people want taxes specifically on millionaires to be increased, like half taxes generally to be increased. So Tony Blair's not speaking really for a minority, mostly for himself when he says that this isn't realistic. We know that it is. Also, again, not to continue my um, European uh, sort of analogies and comparisons, but, you know, Look at look at Europe. We have the Spanish left-wing platform Sumar about to run on Sunday on a platform that includes giving every 18-year-old in the country 20,000 euros as a universal inheritance. How are they going to fund it? By making the emergency wealth tax that they introduced during the, the pandemic, which, by the way, a vast majority of British people would support in this country, permanent. We know that we can fund these things. We know that there is the money. And 
I think that this this is Keir Starmer living once again in in a world of sort of think tank gurus and consultants and people like Tony Blair, quite frankly, who are so out of touch with what the public wants and knows is possible. They received furlough payments. They've received help from the government in, in, you know, unimaginable um, sort of proportions uh, in the recent past. Uh, And so, you know, he's in a kind of policy bubble in a sort of centrist bubble, while the rest of us know what's possible. I do think it's it's telling that as Starmer rose to become leader of the opposition, obviously his campaign to become leader of the Labour Party was built on those infamous pledges, those socialist pledges. And as soon as he got in, he, he started abandoning them one by one. And I think a lot of people saw him as very craven for doing that in the first place and that he probably never believed in them. And I wonder if it's maybe a mixture of those things in that he he, he did believe in them when he was surrounded by the sort of people who agreed with them. And then as he gets further up and gets in this policy bubble with all, you know, the sensible grown-ups, the David Evans, the Tony Blairs, the Peter Mandelsons in his ear saying, no, you need, actually, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. This man who I would not call strong of character or conviction instead says, okay, well, we're going to do this. This is the sensible view. Actually, I'm convinced it's sensible. It's sensible to do this. So... (laughs) I, I I feel like the this Keir Starmer political robustness is maybe not even come from as craven a place as we believe, but merely he is not a politician who had strong convictions in the first place and is eager to prove himself while listening to a lot of people who are a lot more careerist even than he is. But let's move on to our next story. Just Stop Oil has become one of the most notorious protest groups in the country. But the backlash to their increasingly innovative disruption is fierce and sometimes, admittedly, quite creative. Now, Just Stop Oil were preparing to slow march through Elephant and Castle today, but they were met with some similarly dressed counter-protesters. Now, this is footage posted by JSO. My name's Pia. I'm 29 years old. And yesterday, I was arrested for peacefully protesting on the road. But I'm back out here today because it is our democracy right to do so. And we know that disruption is uncomfortable, but it's necessary. And we meet this circle of people around us and we do agree about the same things, except that we have that sense of urgency that when you see that a house is on fire, you're not gonna ask permission to the people inside to call the fire, the fire rescue. You're just going to do it. And that's what Just Stop Oil does. We're ringing the alarm bell. And yes, getting on the road is scary. But again, it is necessary. And we do this out of love. And we also do it out of desperation. Because this government does not have our best interests at heart. Quite the opposite. It is determined to go through with over 100 new fossil fuel licenses. And that's our future. That's everyone's future. Yours as well as ours. And the people who have children too. And, you know, it's it's not just my generation. It's every single pe- person here and the people in the global south as well. My mom lives in Canada. There was over 100 wildfires in our province. I'm terrified. I've got family in the south of France too. There are droughts there. The ground was 60 degrees in Spain. That's crop failure. That's wildfires. I just don't want this future for myself or for any one of you. No, 
I'd like to see how long you're prepared to stand there, because this is great for us. We're having a conversation. What's your plan? Because when you do leave, we're going to go on the road again. But we, I think it's been so beneficial this morning being able to meet with some of you lovely people and having conversations with you and finding out why we're here and why you're here. Because believe me, we are the ordinary people and we've got the power. The only bit that needs to happen now is we need, all need to connect the dots and join together. If we agree, we just, we just want to stop pissing people off. No. People yeah. Out. I don't know. There's an election next year. You don't like this government. Maybe stand for election. We agree, but just stop pissing people off. If you don't like this government, stand for election. Well, we know at least one liberal was among that fray. The counter-protesters kettled JSO activists, and they're yet to be identified as a formal group, but they wore orange shirts designed like the signature JSO tees, branded with the slogan, quote, just stop pissing people off. On social media, however, JSO claimed the standoff resulted in a rhetorical victory, tweeting this. Breaking. Just Stop Oil met with counter-protest. Supporters of Just Stop Oil were met with a counter-protest while preparing to slow march in Elephant and Castle. But after explaining their reasoning for demanding an end to new oil and gas, the counter-protesters dispersed. This alleged change of heart has caused some on social media to speculate that the counter-protesters were actually arranged by JSO themselves. I've got to say on that one, get the tinfoil hats out, lads. That's, that's quite far-fetched. But meanwhile, across London, as we may have just given you a bit of a clue to, other JSO members were causing a fuss at your local dark money-funded right-wing think tank. This building houses Policy Exchange. And for those who need a little bit of a reminder, Policy Exchange is the, quote, largest and most influential right-wing think tank in the UK. Michael Gove is one of the illustrious founders. And they've got a long track record of targeting the likes of Muslim organisations and climate activists. Their projects include trying to limit the power of the judiciary in the UK and a, quote, Biology Matters policy unit, which is supposed to, quote, document the development and impact of policies based on gender identity theory. Policy Exchange is one of the least transparent think tanks when it comes to revealing where their millions of pounds in yearly funding comes from. But last year, it was reported that they had previously received thousands of pounds from oil giant ExxonMobil. Policy Exchange later went on to release a report recommending the criminalisation of climate protesters like Extinction Rebellion, titled pithily Extremism Rebellion. Legally, I've got to note that there is no evidence that Exxon's money specifically funded the report. But nevertheless, Policy Exchange has attracted the attention of Just Stop Oil. And some in Westminster were appalled. Here's how Sebastian Payne, fellow think tank director and wannabe Tory MP, reacted. This is both dumb and disgraceful. Policy Exchange is an important part of the Westminster think tank scene and shouldn't be intimidated in this way. Not an important part of the Westminster think tank scene. Oh, the humanity. However, I think it will take a bit more than some orange paint to intimidate policy exchange. More's the pity. Meanwhile, while some on the right are condemning a quick paint job as disgraceful, others are saying they, quote, sympathise with the anger of a man who punched and kicked a Just Stop Oil protester. Now, this is a video filmed at a Just Stop Oil slow march protest in Earl's Court on Wednesday. Quick warning, this video does show violence and it features pretty strong language. 
Pretty harrowing stuff. The aggression of that man is very visceral. And I think everyone who's seen that clip and was there, you, you can see just how disturbing it is to see somebody attack a protester like that. Now, here's how Piers Morgan reacted to that scene during his Wednesday talk TV show. Well, a shocking incident. Uh, to be clear, I don't condone the violence. I don't think motorists should take the law into their own hands. But where exactly is the law? Where were the police? I can sympathise with the anger someone feels if they're trying to go about their day to get to a hospital appointment or to see their families, or the anger of someone who sees his pregnant partner involved in a collision because of a protest and then an argument in the street with those protesters. Now, they haven't done anything wrong. They're not pumping oil. They're just trying to get to work. Public anger with these protests is simmering to boiling point. In the absence of common sense policing, this is going to inevitably be the result, a growing number of protesters are simply dealing with it themselves. It's only a matter of time before one of them gets seriously injured. And the best way to prevent that is possibly this. Watch out! Well, that's how they do it in Germany. Now, this is a pretty common line that's been adopted by right-wing broadcasters who legally can't be seen to advocate for violent responses from the public to the likes of Just Stop Oil protesters. Instead, they're saying the police should be the ones enacting the violent, repressive response to protesters. Here's Piers' fellow talk TV host, Julia Hartley-Brewer, yesterday speaking to journalist Ross Clark. A lot of people will just say... They thought this was probably going to be something that would happen eventually because, frankly, people have had enough with these protests, haven't they? Well, they have. And, uh, you know, obviously that, that was sort of rather unacceptable behaviour. I don't condone violence in any way. Um, but it, it is very much the duty of the police to act against these yeah. um, protests before things get to this stage exactly. and before people start to take um, matters into their own hands. I mean, in a civilised society, we effectively cede our right to sort of take, um, you know, action against other people trying to enforce the law ourselves. In But part of the deal is that, you know, the police do that on our behalf. And yeah. um, Now, Ross Clark, as it said on screen, is the author of Not Zero, Why an Irrational Target Won't Help You. Gives a bit of a clue to his uh, stance on climate change. Something I'm fascinated by, Rivka, why are so-called libertarians like Ross Clark suddenly against free speech when it comes to climate protesters? Well, I think it's all good and well pointing out the hypocrisy of these positions. You know, it's like Richie Sunak saying that Nigel Farage shouldn't be denied a Coots account whilst all the while closing systematically the bank accounts of people who undertake political action. And the, real, the reason is that the establishment protects itself. Ross Clark 
doesn't want to defend the free speech of people that he doesn't agree with, and and particularly people who are undermining the status quo. And I think this is what's really important to recognize. Free speech, we use the term very liberally, but there are two very different types of speech. There's speech which upends the state, the, the speech which reinforces the status quo, you know, the free speech of Kathleen Stock saying that, you know, uh, trans women are not women, which is something that any Tory minister would uh, would tell you is true. And then there's dissent, which is critically different from free speech, in that it goes against the, the wisdom of the powerful. And that's exactly what Just Stop Oil are doing by saying that we should stop uh, new oil and gas exploration. So the reason that uh, Ross Clark, who is a supposed supporter of free speech, wants to crack down on Just Stop Oil is because they're not just speaking, they are dissenting. And I think that's really important. I think what's also really important is, you know, the fact that um, it is true to say that currently, as it stands, um, a, a majority of the British public has an unfavourable opinion of Just Stop Oil. But you know who else had an unfavourable opinion? You know who else was... Uh, you know, not widely popular at the time, the civil rights movement. I can guarantee you in 2050, whatever parts of Sweden remain not underwater will be celebrating Greta Thunberg Day. It might take decades, it might take centuries if we have them, but there will be massive congratulation and thanks to the people who raised the alarm whilst it was still possible for us to change course on the planet on the planet and its and, and and the climate and its destruction you know right now these people might be unpopular although we're seeing that that shift dramatically as people in the UK become climate refugees not just in in the global south where we've somehow accepted that that's uh, that's inevitable um but but you know whether we like it or not Piers Morgan says people are simmering to boiling point such that they want to kick Just Stop World protesters in the head. Well, you know what else is simmering to boiling point? Spain. <laughs> uh, um, I, for one, when I am on my hilltop retreat in 2050 with the little community that I've created, we will be armed with sticks by the way we'll enjoy celebrating our annual free JSO fest um, and making a blood sacrifice I just want to read out one comment that has been left a super chat which is from six pounds from shiny warm who's one of our excellent moderators and they say disability rights UK open online discussion on climate change and disability morning of Friday 28th of July open to any disabled person of carer so put that one in your diaries Rivka Thank you so much for joining me tonight. You have been a joy, a delight. The insights have been brilliant. The laughter too. <laughs> Let's do this again. Yeah, please. Anytime. 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 Oh, be careful. Fox will have you in every single night of the week. Uh, thank you so much to everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for Friday live streams from 6pm. For now, you have been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.